Colossians chapter 1. When Jesus of Nazareth ascended into a cloud above the Mount of Olives 40 days after his resurrection, his disciples returned to the city of Jerusalem. As they made their way down that mount and crossed that narrow valley and back up again into the city, they were not saying, well, I guess that's all over. It was really good to know Jesus. And it's really too bad that he's gone. No, the disciples who had seen Jesus die were convulsed with sorrow. But these same disciples on the day Christ ascended into heaven returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Something had changed. They no longer bickered with one another over who was the greatest. They no longer spewed words of petty criticism and self-infatuated complaint. Their conversations now pulsated with their newfound insights into the Hebrew Scriptures and how those Scriptures so dramatically prophesied the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ that they had seen over these past few years. The redemptive plan of God was exploding like glorious fireworks over their heads. A new age had dawned. Messiah had come. He had conquered death, and He now reigned from heaven's throne. And as these followers of Jesus began to preach, and they began to write about their Lord in these next years that followed, they passionately articulated and exalted Christology. With united voice, they unashamedly proclaimed the absolute supremacy and magnificent splendor of Jesus of Nazareth. They boldly and widely announced this truth. Jesus reigns with universal preeminence and He is the all-sufficient power over heaven and earth. This was their consistent message. These were no cleverly devised myths. They proclaimed what the ancient prophets had foretold and what their own eyes had seen. There is no conspiracy to deceive that can be coordinated by people living strung out over 1,500 years. They saw what they saw, and they saw the preparation in the Old Testament Scriptures. It was no cleverly devised myth. And the apostles of Jesus proclaimed their exalted Christology with united voice. Critics of Scripture love to tell us that Peter and Paul went different directions in their understanding of Christ. It's not true. But one of the reasons they want to say that is because any group of people who are concocting a myth, you will expect some of them to go different directions. And for different versions of the myth to develop, there was no different versions of the myth. And anyone who reads Paul and reads Peter and what they wrote knows this. They spoke with united voice and they spoke these truths for their entire lives. Lives that almost every last one of them laid down for Jesus Christ. 
You would think somewhere in that trail somebody was going to crack on this myth. They didn't crack. There wasn't anything to crack on. They were telling the absolute truth and they were willing to lay down their lives to say Jesus Christ is supreme over the universe. It was a high and exalted Christology that developed right out of the gate as the apostles took over in Jesus' absence, quote-unquote. Simply said, the apostles of Jesus Christ were absolutely insane, or they spoke the truth. We gather as a church this day to celebrate and to announce that they spoke the truth. We gather to worship Jesus Christ as the risen, reigning King of kings and Lord of lords. Think of the songs that we have sung today. We have been seeking to lift up and to exalt the supremacy, the preeminence of Jesus Christ. This is our glorious privilege. But perhaps it is also the place of our great deficiency as God's people. Do you not sense that our spiritual weakness as a church and as individual Christians is directly tied to our dull sense of the glory and greatness of Jesus Christ? Do we come this day with an overwhelming sense of His sovereign majesty, of His all-encompassing love, and all-sufficient spiritual provision. Did we live under such a large vision of Jesus this past week? I don't know about you, but I long for a greater and more glorious vision of Jesus Christ. Not because the one provided in Scripture is insufficient. Not because I want a greater myth I want a larger vision of the glory of Jesus Christ because it's the truth. The problem lies with me. It lies with us who do not see Jesus as we ought. The problem does not lie with Scripture. For this we need a word from God. We need to saturate ourselves in this revelation of the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And for such a vision, we turn today to the book of Colossians and the words of Paul. He writes to the Colossian believers under the significant temptation to conclude, that is, they are under this temptation to conclude, that Jesus was the Savior, but that He was an inferior being. We don't know all that the Colossian believers were hearing. We don't know all of the pressures. But we do know that there was some sense of the inferiority of Jesus Christ to God. Paul wrote in part to straighten out that terrible misunderstanding. And we find, first of all, his declaration here of the supremacy of Christ in chapter 1 and verse 15. He declares Christ's supremacy when he says in chapter 1, verse 15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. We could take a full course to unpack this profound statement. He, of course, refers to the Son that the Father loves there in verse 13. He, Jesus Christ, is the image of the invisible God. God is spirit. 
And unless God acts to objectify His presence, He is invisible. We cannot see God. He is spirit. He is not limited to a time and place and to a body. God is spirit. But Jesus is the image of God. In other words, Jesus is the visible manifestation of the invisible reality of God. Jesus objectifies God's presence so that God can be seen. By image, Paul does not mean that Jesus is merely a likeness of God, such as a photograph. We take a photograph, we have an image that is a representation of certain individuals. Some of you are working on putting those out at this season, aren't you? You're probably getting a family picture. Now, nobody thinks as that picture arrives with season's greetings that that's you or that's of the same essence. If you died and the picture burned, boy, let's see, which one do we want to have happen? Not that at all. Of course, it's you are very different than that picture. This is not the sense in which Jesus is the image of God. He is the image of God in that He is the visible manifestation of the invisible God. He's not on a piece of paper. He's real and breathing and alive, fully God. He is the image of the invisible God, the exact representation of that reality. And the only way Jesus can supply such a manifestation of God is that He shares God's nature, as verse 19 will make clear. We might think, for instance, of a son, not a picture of a family, but a son who is very like his father. And we have the phrase, I have no idea where it comes from, inform me later if you know, but we have this phrase in our language that says he's the spitting image of his father, right? Now, what has to do with anything? What spitting's got to do with this? But we say that, don't we? He's the spitting image of his father. We don't mean by that that he's a picture on a wall with a frame around it. We mean that he's just like him. He's living and breathing. But even that illustration really falls apart to some degree. Because in John 14 and verse 9, Jesus says, If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. It's even deeper than that. It would be hard to find a way to make it any more clear that Jesus is God, very God. Although Paul will, in fact, try to improve on this statement in just a little bit. He is the image of the invisible God. The declaration, secondly, there, parallel to it, He is the firstborn over all creation. Now, in English, when we hear the word firstborn, it always indicates what? It's always priority of time. Someone is a firstborn in a family, we know that that person was born first, and then in time other siblings followed. That's the firstborn. The Greek concept of firstborn was not limited to priority of time. In fact, it was often used a priority of rank. You could speak of a general in the army as the firstborn of his army. He might have been younger than many of the individuals in the army, but he was the firstborn in the Greek sense of the term. And that is the sense that is used here, a priority of rank or importance. Jesus is the firstborn in sovereign rank. In fact, a text has even been found of Jew in Jewish literature around this time that spoke of God as the firstborn. Every Hebrew knew that God had no beginning. He was not born. He didn't have a birthday as such. 
Every Hebrew knew that, yet they could speak of Yahweh, of Jehovah God, as the one who was firstborn over creation. And it is in that sense that Paul uses the phrase of Jesus. The point is that Jesus is preeminent over all. He holds sovereign rank. In like manner, Paul declares that Jesus has this place, as does God the Father. And why is that, Paul? We have the declaration of this great supremacy of Jesus Christ, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn in rank, supreme over all creation. Why is that? We find the demonstration of Christ's supremacy beginning at verse 16. For, you notice that word, for by him all things were created. Jesus is supreme over creation because he created the universe. By him all things were created. That word by, if you write in your Bible and it says by him all things were created, which most translations do, just write the word in there. It's a really, I think, a better translation. In him all things were created. It speaks of Jesus as the sphere of the entire creation. It simplifies it perhaps a little too far, but to make it simple, it is saying essentially that all of creation is in the palm of Jesus' hand. It all takes place within Him as the sphere. In Him all things were created. In, hev- in the heavens, literally, and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, powers, rulers, authorities. Some say that two of these mentions are, are, are to human authorities and two are to spiritual beings. Others say that all four refer to spiritual beings. Of course, it really doesn't ultimately matter. He is supreme over every rank whether it is a human authority or it is a spiritual being. He is sovereign creator over every power in the universe. By him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, powers, rulers, authorities, all things were created by him. Is that a repetition of the earlier phrase? In fact, it's not. It looks as if it is in English. It is in English, actually. They both say by him. But this is actually a different Greek preposition, which indicates here that Jesus is the agent of creation. He's the one who did it. He's the one who brought it about. The Son actively created the universe. Jesus was the master craftsman of all that is. And we find then that he's not only the source or the sphere of creation, the agent of creation, he's also the destiny of creation with this next phrase at the end of verse 16, and for him. That seems like almost a throwaway phrase. It's just a simple, but it says so much. It's all created for him. It means that the destiny of all creation is to find its realization and fullness in the person of Jesus Christ. Paul is claiming that the created order gravitates toward Christ, who is its originating center and its final consummation. Quick time out here. Let's remember, Paul is talking here about a Jewish peasant who was executed by Rome less than a generation ago. There's no confusion who he's talking about. This one who died on a cross some 25, 30 years earlier, this one, all creation gravitates to him. 
He brought it all into being. He holds it all in his hand. This Jesus is the creator of the universe. Paul is no Greek philosophical wacko out there. Paul's roots, remember, are not in Greek philosophy. Ultimately, they are in the Hebrew Scriptures. They are in the Scriptures that teach us in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and that lay out for us there in six creative days all of the universe made by God. This is Paul's home. These are his roots. This same Paul says... That one who created all things is that Jew that was killed in Jerusalem a few years back. Same one. What an astonishing statement to someone rooted in the Hebrew Scriptures. And what an astonishing statement it is to us who have the advantages of scientific advancement. It's beyond our imagination. The visible universe is believed to contain 250 billion galaxies, of which ours is a rather modest one. 250 billion galaxies with 100 to 200 billion stars around perhaps each one planets that are revolving. And all of this Jesus Christ spilled across the vast stretches of the universe with a word. He made it all. Jesus created the universe, says Paul. And he continues in verse 17 to say that Jesus pre-exists the universe He is before all things. Paul always uses this word in reference to time. Jesus existed before the universe was created. He is indeed eternal God. Thirdly, Jesus sustains the universe. Verse 17, before all things and in Him all things hold together. In Him, that is again the idea of sphere. In His hand, all things are held together or cohere. He is the principle of cohesion in the universe, one has said well. The principle of cohesion in the universe is Jesus Christ. Again, I reiterate, this is an astonishing claim for a devout Hebrew rabbi. Paul revered the Creator God. And he read his Old Testament Scriptures and knew them as well as anyone in Israel. When he read Proverbs chapter 8 and saw there the personification of wisdom, this force, this, do we dare say, being, this wisdom, thought the Hebrew scholars, who was with God at creation, this wisdom says Paul, is none other than Jesus Christ. He is the craftsman of the universe. As John will put it in John 1 and verse 3, through Him all things were created. Any questions? John continues, without Him nothing was made that has been made. This universe was made with intelligent design. 
that designer and that creator was Jesus of Nazareth. He is head over creation. Paul continues as he begins to bring the majesty of the greatness of Jesus Christ to bear in the lives of those who read his letter when he says, secondly, that Jesus is head over the church. Demonstrating his supremacy through creation, he now moves to the new creation. We have, if you will, the macrocosm of the physical creation, and he moves now to the microcosm of the new creation, the church that is created in Christ Jesus unto good works and unto eternal presence with Christ. Jesus holds absolute supremacy in the church. The declaration we find in verse 18, and He is the head of the body, the church. He is the head of the body, the church. That is, He is the reigning, the reigning authority and perhaps life source of the church. He certainly is that. Perhaps the, the phrase means both. Of the church. The born-again followers of Jesus, united together in Christ when the Holy Spirit washes our souls clean of sin and animates our spirits with new life. Jesus is the head of that body of that people. This new living organism, the church, is animated by and carries out the purposes of its sovereign head, Jesus Christ. He is the beginning. It says, the primal source of all the church's spiritual powers and gifts and blessings. We are rooted in Him as the author of all that we are and have as believers. He is, it says here then in verse 18, the firstborn from among the dead. What does that mean? It is saying that Christ was the first one to rise from the grave and to enter heaven in glorified flesh. United to Jesus, His people, the church will follow Him in resurrection. Now all of this is for a purpose. Jesus is the head of the church. He is the church's life source and originator. He is the church's trailblazer into the resurrection life. The purpose of all of this the purpose of his headship is seen in that latter phrase in verse 18. So that in everything he might have the supremacy. That Jesus might hold his rightful place as the sovereign Lord of the universe is the purpose of it all. He rose from the dead and he ascended on high in physical flesh to demonstrate that he is supreme in everything. Jesus is supreme Lord, reigning over every nation and tribe and village and city and hamlet on this globe. Jesus is supreme Lord over every discipline and technology and industry and area of knowledge. He is supreme Lord over every war and natural disaster and personal disaster. He is Lord wherever you go. In space, Lord over every planet and star and galaxy, Jesus reigns as supreme Lord. Listen, Christian, it means that wherever you go, whatever you see in this world, everywhere over everything, Jesus Christ is there, Lord and King. Now the people running 
that technology and running that industry and running that city and nation and carrying on that war and persecuting those people and killing those people may not know it or may certainly not want to acknowledge it. But it makes no difference wherever you step on this planet or wherever you go into the farthest reaches of space, Jesus Christ reigns there. He is the supreme center of all. And He is the supreme and reigning center at work and in your home and over your head. Jesus reigns supreme. But contextually, this is all true, but contextually the emphasis here here falls on the idea that Jesus is supreme over what? He is supreme over the church. As he is the creator of the universe, so he is the creator and the sovereign head of the church. As he sustains the universe, so he sustains the life of his people, the church. This is amazing truth. This one, I mean, we, biblical authors could spend all of their time speaking about the majesty of creation and that Jesus is the creator of all of this. But as big as all of that is, he brings it down to this pinpoint in the universe and says he is Lord of the church. Which says he's supreme, but also says how amazing is our relationship with this head. That he would bow and bend and submit himself to care to love, and to rule over his people. And what an immense tragedy then it is for churches to steal this glory from Christ. How foolish, how utterly insane. This one who has created the universe, who has defeated death and reigns on heaven's throne, for us to steal from him a piece of his glory when it comes to the church. We hear phrases such as church success. There are, there's literature that I receive from time to time. Apparently I've gotten off the list because I used to get a lot of it. I get a lot less today. But there are people putting out literature speaking about the success of the church. And generally when they use that phrase, they are using certain type of business techniques to help you to build the business. When we speak of the church as successful, the glory often goes to a program or to a curriculum or to a speaker or to music or to an evangelistic approach. And so often the result is that the fame falls on the church. The spotlight falls on a local assembly or on some seminar, some group of Christians who are doing such great things I give thanks for what took place here a couple of Wednesday nights ago as some within our assembly shared testimonies here on that Thanksgiving Eve service. That was a very encouraging time to hear what God is doing in the lives of His people and how He's working within our assembly and how He's changing lives. I thank God for that time, that spiritual encouragement that took place that night. 
I understand that there was testimony, as there is every year at Our Lady's Christmas dinner, as people speak about what God is doing in their life, how He is changing them and helping them and growing them. I thank God for these testimonies. May they continue. May they increase. May others join in the train. But may we resolve to never forget that when people come to trust Christ as Savior, the glory belongs to the head of the church, Jesus Christ, never to our evangelistic effort or program. The glory belongs to Him. It belongs to Him when believers are freed from sin. It belongs to Him when there is a demonstration of love among the people of our assembly. The glory belongs to Jesus Christ when God's Word is handled with integrity, when there is evidence of spiritual growth in God's people. The cause of it all is the originator of the church, Jesus Christ, from whom all blessings flow to us. It is not in us. It is in Him. And may we never forget it. Whatever good we see, whatever grace He pours out upon us, comes from His throne and is His glory. The means of this headship of Jesus Christ over the church is described in verse 19, where it says, where Paul writes, For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him. The sum total of all that God is resides in all fullness in the person of Jesus Christ. I mentioned that Paul will try to improve upon or add to verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn over creation. Here he says that all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Him, in Jesus. He possesses the fullness of God. The Father was pleased that the Son would share His nature and reveal God to humanity. And God was also pleased, secondly, that Jesus reconciled all things to Himself by dying. Verse 20, All fullness dwells in Him. All the fullness of deity dwells in Jesus. And through Him, verse 20, to reconcile to Himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven. This is a universal claim. God reconciles to Himself everything in the universe. That is, God responds to all things that are hostile to Him by virtue of the fall, and He brings them into proper relationship with Himself. All things. Now, some enter in here and seek to answer this, because, let me first say, what is the question here, all things are reconciled to God, does this mean that in the end all people and all angelic and demonic creatures are saved? Is that not what this means in verse 20? Through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. Is that what it means? That all will eventually be saved? By what means? And how does it, pull, how does it happen? I don't think that it is appropriate for us to say, well, the all things in heaven and earth is a reference to God's people. It's too small of a reference. All things in heaven and earth referring to God's people, Paul could have said that a much more easy way, and this means all that it means. It's been talking about a universal reconciliation. 
how does this reconciliation take place? This perhaps will put some light on it, though it doesn't solve the problem by any means. That's the end of verse 20 where it says, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through His blood shed on the cross. Now those who would say that this is a reference to the work of God to His people, that all heaven and earth is a reference to His people, Verse 21 would seem to support that idea. Once you were alienated from God and enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death, etc. But again, I think the idea of reconciliation here in verse 20 is larger. It is a reference to all things, whether on earth or things in heaven. And in the original, in the heavenlies, could even be a translation So I think it's broader than this. Does this mean all people and all spirit beings will eventually be saved by the sacrifice of Christ? The united voice of the New Testament will not permit such an interpretation. What we must see, I think, to unlock this question, we must see that the reconciling work of Jesus Christ is not yet complete. Now, it's stated here in very bold terms, and we could draw that conclusion that this reconciling work is over. It's completed at the cross. I think that's an assumption that would lead us in a wrong direction. It includes, in fact, the final judgment of sinners and Satan's hosts. So in view here is the entire created order which will be renewed and rescued by God in the future on the merits of Christ's victory over death. What is wrong with this world? What is wrong with this world is death, it is disease, it is decay, it is death, which is all an evidence of the greater problem, a rebellion against God. The death of Jesus Christ on the cross solved that problem. Not immediately, but ultimately. The universe is subject to the destruction of death, to groaning and dying. It it groans and it is dying. But one day, this entire universe will be renewed. It will be reconciled to Jesus Christ because of His death and His resurrection, His work of redemption. This world could never be saved by natural means. It certainly cannot be saved by the people who are killing it. It will be saved only by the Lord Jesus Christ, and it will be saved. It will be rescued. All will be reconciled. And part of that reconciling work will be, in fact, eternal judgment for Satan and his hosts and those who follow him in rebellion against God. But one day all will be renewed. As Pastor Pratt read early in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Verses 20 and following, there will be a day when everything is made right. This is the reconciling work of Jesus Christ. This is the exalted Christology that Paul paints for us. Everything hinges on Jesus. Everything. It's all held by Him, created for Him. It's all moving to Him. He will bring it all to its right place in His time. It is a glorious and exalted vision of Jesus Christ. And the first question that you must ask as you consider why have I thought through these truths today, the first question that you must ask is, is it true? Is it real? 
If you believe such claims to be mythical lies, then you will have to take your chances in eternity. But go warned. The Bible proclaims that every knee will bow before the Lord Jesus Christ who will judge the universe. The message that Scripture gives to us is that it is in His death that Jesus dealt the final, ultimate blow to death and to Satan and to His destruction. And that Jesus, in rising from the dead, defeated death and in that resurrection showed that He had God's approval. He is reigning Lord and He has come to crush the serpent's head. This is Jesus If you have not come to embrace Him for who He is, you need to submit to who He is. Receive Him as your Savior. Embrace this gospel message, for this is reality. For those who have come to embrace this high vision of Jesus, can we say that we live in light of it? How far short we fall. How do the words of our mouths and the actions of our bodies, how do our attitudes compare with that of the apostles who joyfully faced anything to exalt Jesus? We cannot hear this high and exalted vision of Christ and not be moved to consider the need to proclaim it. Jesus Christ reigns supreme over every person and every situation in the universe. We can proclaim Him freely, And I think we will if we really believe. This is one of the great differences between a dull vision of Jesus and a glorious vision of Jesus. The dull go to church and they shuffle through their Christian lives. And church is sort of this attachment over there on the side where we learn some interesting truths. And maybe once in a while they filter into our life. But there's really no sense of the reigning Christ. A glorious vision of Jesus Christ leads to proclamation. We must proclaim it and share it and hold it out to those who are in need. If we see the reigning and glorious Christ, there will be a desire in our heart to bring others into that reconciling circle. This is, he is the center of all things, and this is His project. And if this is His project to reconcile all things unto Himself then we should desire to be part of that reconciling work to draw people in to Christ, to show them who He is, to proclaim His truth. And I think if we see Jesus for who He really is, we will need to do that. We will desire to do that. What a joy it is to do it. I'm like you. There are times when proclaiming Christ is a nervous thing that seems to stumble and not work very well. I can think of an occasion here recently where that was just the case. By God's grace, as we are enamored with Christ, as we are in love with Christ, as we lift Him up and exalt Him, He, by His grace, continues to give us opportunities where it's not nervous, and it's not difficult, and it's glorious. And I can think recently of an opportunity in meeting with a man where I praise God for that kind of freedom to lay out for this individual lost in his sin that Jesus Christ has come to provide salvation. 
He is the great mediator and advocate. He provides saving grace. What a wonderful truth for us to share as we seek to do the work of reconciliation in the lives of others. I think it speaks secondly, just briefly, if you'll endure with me a few more moments, I I think it speaks of sanctification, doesn't it? Jesus is our all-sufficient Savior. You do not need a seminar to grow in Jesus Christ. You do not need a psychologist to be all that God wants you to be. You do not need to find special keys to unlock the secret of the Christian life. How, what are we doing to the glory and the reputation of Jesus Christ when we run around looking for the key to the Christian life when that key is bigger than the universe? He's there. He's created it all. It all is held in His hands. He's the sovereign, reigning, exalted Lord. Yes, we have difficulty applying the truth of God's Word and we run into trouble with sin and we find life is confusing, but let's not go running around looking for little keys to the Christian life. The key is Jesus Christ and He's all-sufficient. You don't need another Savior. You have it all in Him. I think thirdly, if we embrace this large vision of Christ, we will learn to more and more see that He is the head of our church. And when we see that He is the head of our church, by God's grace it will wean us off of self-centered goals to realize that He reigns here and is pouring out His blessings. I fear for people who are blind to the work of God in a growing church. I mean spiritually growing church. It's scary. But it's not unusual to see individuals who come and declare how God is leading them to grow and changing their lives and they're seeing a new and fresh vision of God and then to talk to somebody who is utterly blind to it all. It's frightening. We need to see the hand of God in our assembly. We need to learn to see that hand. And we need to realize that the blessings that God provides are from the glorious Christ. May we not trample on those blessings and remain blind to them because of this or that little difficulty. Now that is not to say that a church is not responsible to respond to its head. It's not to say that every good thing God's doing in a church shows that that church has God's approval. Jesus can move a candlestick anytime He wants, and if Jesus wants to throw the candlestick in the garbage, He can do that. It's His church. He doesn't owe us. But let's not be blind to His work. For every good and perfect gift does come from above. He reigns as head over His church. May we never forget it, and may we learn to see it. The fog and the difficulty is that we're sinners. We are sinners in an assembly. And so we fail sometimes to see the glories of God because of our failings and our weaknesses. We're small. We're incomplete. 
We are insufficient. Let's never let that cloud our vision of the reigning Christ. Fourthly, this says to us that Jesus is in sovereign control of all things. It says that he will write the last chapter. It teaches us that he is reconciling all things to himself and all will end there. Or as Paul puts it to the Romans, all things are working together for good to those who love God and are the called according to his purpose. All things are working together for good because the God who brings all things into conformity with his will is reigning in sovereign control over all things. I can't figure out why he does what he does. I can't figure out why sin is allowed such a long leash in this world. That's not my job to figure that out. I don't have to give explanation for why God is God. I need to understand that he is and submit to it and know that he reigns sovereign and supreme. And that means not only over the people of this earth, but it means over your life. Jesus Christ is the sovereign Lord. That's who he is. And so as we learn to filter all of life it will, from this perspective, it will give us a new vision and a new orientation a sense of settledness and security, a pilgrim status as we move to the final end of Christ's reconciling work. He has put everything under his feet, Paul said to the Corinthians. Now it's clear, this doesn't mean God. It is clear that this doesn't mean that all things are what they will be. But it means that even the Son will ultimately be subject to the Father who put everything under him so that God may be all in all when the Son hands the kingdom over to his Father and says, reconciliation is done. Apparently it's going to be a long, long time. And it will be a long, long time from our perspective. But that day will come. Do you live in light of that day? Does it direct your attention and orient your vision of the world? I stand before you today simply to lift up Jesus Christ. May the scriptures do so and may the Spirit of God confirm this truth in our minds. Jesus Christ reigns supreme over creation and he reigns supreme over the church of which he is the head and the life source. May we exalt him in those terms and learn to develop in our own lives an exalted Christology that will change our lives and bring glory to our Savior as he finishes his reconciling work. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we struggle to know how to pray. Thank you for keeping us in the dark in some respects as to how great you are. 
How majestic is your throne. How high and lifted up, how vast, unmeasurable your greatness and power. Were we to truly conceive it, we would die. But I thank you, Lord, that you allow us to live. That by your gracious mercies, you help us to see what we can handle. And I pray, Lord, that there would be a craving in our heart to handle more. To grow in our vision of Jesus Christ. To see Him as great and exalted. I pray, God, that this vision would deepen in our assembly. I pray with all of my heart for these who are here. And I ask, dear Father, that You would please raise them up. Lift up their eyes. Help them to see the vision of Christ as revealed in your word. I pray, God, that we would grow in his likeness. I pray for any who know you not as Savior and ask that you would draw such ones to yourself and enlighten their eyes and permit them to see the truth of a glorious Christ and to embrace him simply by faith as the Savior. I pray that you would make clear to them the need, what it is and what it is not. They will come in simple faith and call upon your name for saving grace. Will you answer that prayer in the heart of any who are praying now and calling upon you? I pray, Father, that we will, as a church, learn to submit to your lordship and learn to lift high your greatness and your goodness to us in Christ. May this be a transforming passage of Scripture in our lives as we grow. We lay these requests at your feet. Ask that you will continue through your Spirit to do your work in our lives this day. Through Christ I pray. Amen.